1: It's Monday, May 14th, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore
2: Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters.
1: You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. And if you would like an ad-free version, just go to patreon.com slash inquiringminds and pledge $5 or more a month to support us. And we upload our ad-free versions right there.
2: We just spent some time with a giant Pacific octopus uh, at the Cal Academy recently for our... uh, And by
1: that, I mean, like, we actually got to touch it.
2: Oh, it, like, spent quality time for us it like we became friends yeah it like hooked its uh tentacles ar- around our arms definitely Quite strong.
1: sampled my uh chemistry
2: <laughs> yeah let's just say uh this is all for our recent uh, video series on tested called science and progress we teamed up with with adam savage he made a puzzle for the octopus to solve as part of keeping that octopus stimulated what did you think about the experience of hanging out with the octopus, though?
1: Oh, it was totally awesome, I have to say. I mean, I was super excited. I was like a kid in a candy shop even before we got there because cephalopods are so interesting to me because of their distributed nervous systems. You know, as a neuroscientist, it's really fascinating to even conceive of the idea of having sort of a network of brains rather than one central processor.
2: Yeah, we spent all that time talking to the biologists about the, the intelligence. I mean, naturally, like, that's an easy place to be interested in. But also, they're just weird. Yeah. I know. Mean, I don't know like how else to put it, Cephs are weird creatures. Even though you can kind of see a line of evolution through the different kind of speciations that we see of, of different cephalopods, they are still strange, really yeah. strange.
1: But and yet they're kind of understandable. Like, do you remember when, like, in order to call the octopus, she, she like padded Margarita, who is who's the, the person, the scientist there that we were working with. She like, you know, slapped the top of the water tank. And the octopus eventually heard that. And if it did, wanted to, which in both cases that we were there, it did. It came to the surface. And then we got to play.
2: I love that it had like a personality where it was like, eh, not today. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I so I've become much more interested in cephalopods since then and and I had a conversation with Julie Burwald a couple episodes ago about jellyfish and that really got me hooked. And, and a friend, uh Dana Staff happened to have a new book out called Squid Empire which tracks the rise and fall of cephalopods dating back to times when they were the dominant species or dominant sort of set of species here on Earth. This is even before the time of of dinosaurs. Uh, Dana is a science writer with a PhD from Stanford's Hopkins Marine Station, where she studied the behavior of little baby squid. And before I interview, I went to our book launch event, and it was in a bookstore in my neighborhood, and I was like, I'm going to go support my friend with a new book out. And when I walked in, Dana had laid out on a folding table a six-foot-long Humboldt squid, and then proceeded to dissect the squid and talk about the evolutionary basis for all the stuff that we were seeing. Wow. It was the coolest book event I've ever been to,
1: ever. Was it stinky?
2: Uh, Of course it was. (laughs) I mean, we're talking about squid, squid juices. I I felt bad for the bookstore, but they seemed really, really into it. Uh, But hearing all that evolutionary history, I was totally hooked. And uh, a couple weeks later, we recorded this interview.
1: Yeah. And so, we've had Simon Gummery on the show in the past, too, who wrote a book, The Soul of the Octopus, which remains one of my favorite science books of all time.
2: So welcome to Inquiring Minds, the new cephalopods uh, <laughs> podcast out there. So let's take a short break and we'll be back in my interview with Dana Staff.
1: Inquiring Minds is brought to you by Udemy, the largest marketplace for online learning. Whether you want to learn something new or to sharpen your skills, Udemy has an extensive library of over 65,000 courses taught by expert instructors. Ever find yourself thinking, I wish I could do that? With Udemy, you can. From web development to digital marketing to Japanese cooking courses, Udemy has something for everyone. While other online learning companies charge hundreds of dollars per class, Udemy courses start at just $11.99. Plus, each course comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee for risk-free learning. Every day, students around the world choose Udemy to discover new passions, expand their skills, and even change careers. Improve your life through learning. Download the Udemy app to learn anytime, anywhere, or visit ude.my slash inquiring today. That's ude.my slash inquiring.
2: Dana Staff, welcome to Inquiring Minds.
0: Thank you so much. It's great to be here.
2: We're so familiar with the idea of dinosaurs ruling the earth for millions upon millions of years, but That was on land. Your new book details the dominance, the historical dominance of cephalopods overtaking the oceans for millions of years as well.
0: That's right. And it actually predates the whole dinosaur kingdom by a couple hundred million years. They were the original rulers of the planet.
2: When we're talking about original rulers of the planet, how long ago are we talking about?
0: 500 million years ago, 500 to 450 million years ago, when nothing lived on land. So all of the animal life was in the ocean. And it was all trilobites and early echinoderms, sea urchins and sea stars and worms. um, And that was the kingdom over which the cephalopods rose to dominance.
2: And I think we should make it clear, the cephalopods we're talking about historically are not the ones we know of today, the squid, the octopus. These were simpler creatures at that time.
1: That's
0: right. And most notably, they had huge shells. They were almost more like big floating snails that happened to have some cephalopod features. They probably had tentacles. They probably had a siphon for squirting water, but they didn't have the Things that we think of modern cephalopods having the masterful camouflage, they probably didn't even have ink sacs.
2: How did they develop the ability to float? Because they came from the sea creatures that resided on the sea floor, but going from something that's stuck to the floor to floating is non-trivial
0: it is and it was um it was a real enormous evolutionary leap if you will it really made the cephalopods who they are because they were just another snail crawling on the ground uh, in their origin story and what they did with their shell that no other snail did was they started to secrete walls inside the shell that sealed off chambers and those sealed off chambers within those chambers, the animal was able to extract liquid and let gas diffuse in. And the gas diffusing into those sealed chambers in the shell had no escape. And so it just accumulated there and lifted them up like like heating the air in a hot air balloon or like pumping helium into a party balloon. It made them more buoyant.
2: And the whole idea of the Developing this, I guess would give them an advantage from the perspective of having more access to oxygen and be able to grow faster is that right
0: oh that's an interest a really interesting point you know why would this have evolved It would have evolved in stages what what advantage was being conferred as as the buoyancy increased um and yeah, it's quite possible that by rising up even a little bit off the seafloor, there might've been more oxygen in the water. We don't really know what the conditions were like exactly. So that that's kind of guesswork. It's quite likely that it also made it easier for them to gather food for to sort of hovering above the ground instead of having to ooze along it. Movement is a little bit less costly. You can just drift a bit with the currents and you have a lot more of a buffet at your tentacle tips. You can just reach over and grab a trilobite here and a worm there. And probably none of those animals are really expecting predation to come from above, at least at first.
2: So how does that develop? As you move away from the seafloor, there's a whole new set of predators that probably emerge. I'm guessing fish, especially anything with teeth, come along. Now you're in danger from those types of creatures.
0: It's true, but that didn't happen for millions of years. Uh, because this, this early seafloor that we're envisioning when cephalopods first evolved was before the arrival of any vertebrates. So there weren't any fish, there weren't any marine reptiles, there definitely weren't any dolphins, uh, no, not even any sharks, which we think of as being kind of prehistoric creatures. Um, it was millions of years later that those animals started to evolve. And you're absolutely right, as soon as there were fish with jaws and teeth they they started to grab those shells and crack those shells because those those big shelled cephalopods were not fast swimmers they were just kind of stately drifters and uh, and the fish really gave them a run for their money
2: so we had this period though in between the development of of these predators where they're essentially sort of ruling the oceans because there's nothing hunting them
0: yeah there really weren't any other large predators there were some smaller things, some little shrimp, you know, that were still maybe one or two feet long, but the largest of these shelled cephalopods, um, you know, they had shells in excess of five meters long. So Holy
2: cow. How are they that big?
0: They were enormous. And the thing is once the shell makes its own buoyancy, in a sense it can just get arbitrarily large almost because it is, You know, A snail or a clam is sort of limited because the bigger its shell is, the heavier it is and the harder it is to carry around. But the bigger a cephalopod shell is, it's exactly as buoyant because it just has more and more chambers with buoyant gas in them.
2: But I'm just sort of amazed that they would grow to that size. I guess when you don't have any predators and there's a lot of food around, just keep growing, keep eating. Yeah.
0: Uh, they they have that sort of indeterminate growth where they'll just keep adding as long as they're alive.
2: So do we see in the fossil record these giant shells? Is that how we know this, this sort of history exists?
0: Exactly. So the, the shells are fossilized. The soft parts of the animals are generally not, not from that long ago. And so in terms of you know we think they probably had tentacles because that seems to be an ancestral trait of cephalopods but how many and how long and um you know what were their eyes like that's all guesswork but the shells fossilized and um and yeah there are the these really long ones we don't have any complete fossils of a super long one but there are fragments that you can piece together kind of like fossil shark teeth or fossil tyrannosaur teeth you piece them together to see how big Megalodon was, for example, based on its teeth. And yes, so the pieces of the large straight-shelled cephalopods, the, the largest one pieced together is thought to have been nine meters long.
2: Nine meters? That's I know. unbelievably big. I know. <laughs> Just as a quick aside, there's this interesting note in your book about how these creatures developed ammonia in, the, in these sort of chamber areas, and that presents an interesting problem for a scientist like yourself trying to detail the history of these creatures.
0: It's true, although that, again, comes quite a bit later. It's um, I, uh, I'm sorry for the confusion. I, I realized this, that ammonia never came about with the shells. It came about with the loss of the shells.
2: Oh, interesting. So when they went away from the shells, they started developing ammonia in their... It's just in in the tissue
0: of their body, in the soft tissue. They started to accumulate it because it, we think, because it has a sort of comparable buoyant aspect to it. Um, It makes ammonium chloride, which is a salt like the sodium chloride that's on our tables and in the ocean, but it's a tiny bit lighter. Just a tiny bit lighter than sodium chloride. And so if a large amount of the saltiness in a body is... Replacing sodium chloride with ammonium chloride, it can make them sort of neutrally buoyant and they can just drift around. And so a lot of squid today are called ammoniacal squid because they have ammonia in them. And one of my favorite parts of this story is that the early cephalopods, there's a whole group of fossil cephalopods called ammonites named for Ammon, who was this Greek god with curled ram-like horns and they have curled ram-like horn shells. So they're named after the god Ammon because of the shape of their shells. And then the ammonia that makes ammoniacal squids called ammoniacal is also named for the god Ammon because deposits of these salts are found near the temple of Ammon in the part of the world where people used to worship him. So it's sort of this bizarre like the god of ram horns, ammon has this weird, intricate relationship with cephalopods all the way from their early days to modern times.
2: I love the bizarre relationship that humans have with cephalopods, which we'll get to in a little bit. I'm just curious if you can give our listeners a picture of how big the cephalopod family is at this at this point in history the, this these ancient cephalopods are we talking about thousands of species or or something uh, much more simple than that
0: I think there are hundreds of described fossil species or genera it's not always easy to get fossils down to species and certainly a lot more than there are living species the group seems to have been through some pretty major radiations in its past especially with these ammonites, these ones with coiled shells, those were super diverse. There were big ones and little ones and fat ones and skinny ones and ones with spines and ones with ribs. And they did all kinds, and ones with ornaments and decorations and probably all different colors too. So they they were super abundant. Uh, and then they all went extinct along with the dinosaurs when a big asteroid smacked into the planet.
2: So the asteroid killed them off in the same way it killed off the dinosaurs. It just created conditions, whether it heat or the fact that there wasn't sunlight and their food sources died off.
0: Yeah. And it seems to have been also uh, an ocean acidification problem as well, where the surface waters of the ocean, because of the fallout from the huge crater, were getting really acidic.
2: That's so funny that the we consider that the end of the dinosaurs, but we don't talk about it in the context of, of the ocean um, and all the life that died there as well. I was surprised to learn that many cephalopods not all but many cephalopods are relatively short-lived. You know, like modern uh squid and octopuses they only live, you know, 5 years or so um sometimes much shorter than that.
0: Yeah, some of the the, the largest species five is sort of where they top out. Like the giant pacific octopus can live up to 5 years, but the littler species like um like the squid that we turn into calamari rings Um, smaller octopuses that people keep in home aquariums, those live less than a year, six months, a lot of them.
2: And is that true throughout history? Cephalopods are are mostly short-lived creatures?
0: Well, interestingly, it seems to have evolved along with a a whole suite of other adaptations to deal with, among other things, fish. Because as soon as fish came along, the whole evolutionary story of cephalopods, in a sense, becomes an arms race with them how, how can we get faster? How can we escape these jaws, uh, develop camouflage? Eventually they lost the shell and the, you know, the squid and octopus without a shell can swim much faster. They can hide much better. And the short lifespans seem to have come along with that. And this sort of versatility, adaptability that cephalopods display. Uh, and they have this really, and and without having to build a shell as well it's pretty easy to build a large soft body with no hard parts so they can grow quickly
2: how did the propulsion develop like i think we're used to seeing modern squid and octopuses use that sort of jet propulsion where they're using water to as almost like a rocket to to send itself through the through the ocean how did that come about
1: Um, And
0: it's so weird because almost no other animals do that jet propulsion. It's it's super bizarre in biology. And that one does seem to go way back to the early days when they were like little snails rising up off the seafloor. And the first siphons and jets were probably just rolled up folded feet. Uh, Because they they would have had a foot, somewhat like a snail's foot, and that flesh can roll. And if you look at something like a modern nautilus, which is the only living cephalopod that has a shell, the siphon of a nautilus is sort of a folded foot. It's just a a flat chunk of muscle rolled up into a tube. You can kind of imagine like rolling your hands into a tube and blowing through them. It's not going to get you very far, but if you were in space, it would, with no friction and no gravity and everything, just blow through your hands and you would get propelled in the opposite direction.
2: Wow. I mean, you mentioned, you called it weird, and that doesn't even begin to describe some of the other adaptive strategies that cephalopods have developed. I mean, can we talk about the, the camouflage, which is something obviously a lot of other creatures have, but the way that... The camouflage works in the um, within some of these cephalopods is so bizarre.
0: They are the best at it, really, of of any animal. Um, we think of chameleons as the color change masters, uh, and they're they're good at it, but they're kind of slow. Cephalopods, squid in particular, can change colors multiple times per second. They're just unbelievably fast, and the way they do it, they have this incredible system of nerves running through in a network through their skin, and their skin is full of essentially little pixels, these little organs that have sacks of pigment in them. And the nerves can activate muscles to pull those pigment sacks open or closed, which is like turning a pixel on or off. And they have those pigment sacks in browns and reds and oranges and yellows and blacks. And so by sending signals through this nerve net, the skin can create these incredibly complex patterns to blend in with their environment or to send signals to other cephalopods. And then underneath that, they have a whole other layer of color-changing cells that reflect light in blues and purples and greens, like the iridescence on a peacock's tail.
2: What's so fascinating about it isn't so much that they developed camouflage. I mean, that's That's not unique, but it's how quickly they're able to activate the camouflage that seems so bizarre to me.
0: It's really uncanny. And I think it has to do with the way their whole nervous system is more distributed than we vertebrates are used to thinking of. We're used to thinking of a central nervous system that has a brain and then a peripheral nervous system that carries messages from the brain. The brain is in charge. And it has to send these messages to the rest of the body. But a cephalopod's nervous system is way more distributed. It has a lot more of its neurons out in the arms and out in the skin. And we're still learning what that means for how they process information and how they send signals around. Like there can be a lot of processing and signaling that occurs locally. if um, Simon Montgomery wrote this beautiful book, The Soul of an Octopus. In yeah, she was talks-
2: on our podcast uh, a few months ago.
0: Awesome. That's a perfect connection, because she describes this idea that if you were, oh, actually, this is something in her book, but I just remembered it's also in Peter Godfrey Smith's book, Other Minds, where he talks about consciousness in cephalopods, mostly, Um, and that if you were an octopus and you were just, you, you might just be kind of watching your arms go, making their own decisions about the environment. Um, and only controlling them to a certain extent. And even that way of thinking about it puts the octopus in the central nervous system, which is maybe not the right way of thinking about it either.
2: So when we talk about octopus intelligence, or just, just generally intelligence across the cephalopod family, it's not intelligence as we relate to it as invertebrates, it's this distributed network, and we have to approach it in a very different way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, there are things, behaviors that we really recognize. Their, their puzzle solving and problem solving behaviors are, you know, are like what we do with our own fingers when, we, when we're trying to solve a Rubik's Cube or something. And their play behaviors, a group of researchers who described octopuses using their jet of water to shoot a plastic bottle around their aquarium, around and around, described it like watching a child bouncing a ball.
2: Does all of this lump into something that I, I found fascinating, which is that humans have been fascinated with cephalopods for hundreds of years. I mean, you can there's a wonderful exhibit at the Monterey Bay Aquarium that showed that kind of details a little bit of human history with cephalopods, like those ancient drawings of giant octopuses coming up and swallowing ships. So it shows how fearsome the giants were. But also we're fascinated with the puzzle solving and their intelligence and uh, and even some ascribe them as having a personality or in size case, a soul. Where does this human fascination with cephalopods come from? Because it's somewhat recent in in a lot of ways.
0: It is. I think that um, like many other things, the the Internet has probably allowed those of us who are kind of secretly fascinated with weird things like cephalopods to find each other and come out in the open a little bit. And there's, I remember as a kid, I was 10 when I went to the Monterey Bay Aquarium and I saw an octopus and I was struck, I was in love. And and I started to read aquarium hobbyist magazines and find that there were other people keeping them as pets from time to time. Um, And now you can go online and there's a whole forum of people who just love octopuses and love cephalopods. In fact, there are multiple such forums. There's the Octopus News Magazine online and there's Octonation, the largest octopus fan club. Um, And they're full of delightful people just loving on cephalopods who aren't even necessarily researchers or scientists, but just um, completely fascinated by these animals.
2: You mentioned earlier about the asteroid killing off a huge number of of Ceph species, ancient Ceph species, and we're in a situation where ocean acidification is our current um, environment as well. Are we seeing a decline in the relatively small number of species of cephalopods that we have now due to those same uh, conditions? Or similar conditions, at least.
0: Very interestingly, we are actually seeing a boom in most cephalopod species. And partially that might be because the great extinction at the end of the Cretaceous with the asteroids selected for those animals that could survive. And partially, it's also just to do with the the millions of years of evolution between then and now. Most cephalopods have no shell anymore, no external shell, and even very little of an internal shell. And they're, as we talked about already, they're fast growing. They have a really quick generational turnover. So in one year, you can go through multiple generations. And that helps them to adapt to all the changes that are happening in the ocean. And so they can Um, They can physically migrate from one place to another. They can expand their ranges, move their ranges. And the warmer temperatures, in many cases, allow them to grow even faster and outcompete perhaps any fish that are in the area. And we've already removed a lot of the top predators that were eating a lot of squid and continue to eat a lot of squid. But um, all the marine mammals, dolphins, whales, sea otters, And seals love to eat squid and octopus, and so do a lot of the large fish like tuna. And a lot of those large animals have been targeted by human fisheries for a long time and are not as abundant as they once were.
2: I know you're not positing this, but in the back of my mind, I think it's sort of funny that we could have a return to a new squid empire.
0: (gasps) Oh, I mean, I'm not positing it, but I'm hoping for it. Let's be honest. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think that it is. It's it's a bit funny. The title of my book was Squid Empire, The Rise and Fall of the Cephalopods. And, yeah, I was being a bit uh, tongue in cheek with the rise, with the buoyancy up off of the seafloor. And then it de- describing the fall a bit like their their constant struggle to survive in the face of marine reptiles, fish, marine mammals and everything. But I think um, we are seeing a boom again. That's That's been documented. The, the paper was published in 2016 that most cephalopod species are, are trending up. and um, And it's interesting that we humans seem to have created an ocean that is in many ways more hospitable for them.
2: You mentioned at the very end of your book, how items in your book might be out of date within a couple of years, because while uh, we 've amassed a huge library of knowledge on cephalopods. They remain a pretty large mystery, both because they 're not easy to study and just not many people have studied them. But you point to this picture of acceleration in our understanding of, of cephalopods. What are some of the big questions that uh, that scientists are really trying to tackle with cephalopods now as we, as we sort of move forward into their next empire?
0: <laughs> well, some of the the biggest open questions I think have to do with in terms of the living ones, um, how they do grow so fast, because it's it's actually a bit of a paradox when you sit down and try to grind through the numbers to figure out how they're getting enough food to fuel that kind of growth, especially for the really big species, the, the jumbo squid, colossal squid out there, um, of which there are a lot. And so I think a lot of scientists are just kind of struggling to piece together the basic picture of the ecosystem in the ocean, the ecosystems that have this many large cephalopods in them. Where are they? How are they growing that fast? Where are they getting their energy? And then a lot of the open questions in terms of understanding their deep time history are trying to figure out when different behaviors evolved, how the old forms lived and whether they were all predators like most cephalopods today are, or if they were more like drifting poop eaters, which is quite possible that many of them were just kind of picking up bits and pieces and trash and filtering it through their tentacles. Uh, and, and a lot of those basic things that we think we understand about extinct forms, like dinosaurs, you always learn, okay, even little kids know that there were the meat eaters and the plant eaters, and you can figure out which one a new dinosaur is pretty easily by looking at its jaws and claws and things. But uh, But those things are still opaque with the cephalopod fossils in most cases.
2: The book is called Squid Empire, The Rise and Fall, and Maybe Rise Again, of the cephalopods. <laughs> Uh, Dan Stoff, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds.
1: Thank you, Kishore. It was super fun. It is amazing to think that at one point, you know, the species or life on Earth was dominated by cephalopod ancestors.
2: And not the, the cephs that we sort of think about now, like ones that essentially weren't were lying on the ocean floor for a while before they sort of inflated themselves to draw them, draw themselves up. But it is, a it is really strange because it feels just like on a totally different track of life from mammalian life, from even just land-based life in a lot of ways. Uh, and I know we don't get that visual insight into all the development that's happening in the, in the bacterial world. So we don't see that kind of like the magnificence of evolution in this way, but this is a good visual peek into that world. I still don't understand Nautiluses, though. Why do they, <laughs> why do they look like that? Like, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Uh, yeah. But just going from the being on the ocean floor evolving like an air sac to live lift kind of essentially lift them up off the ground to gather more food uh and then developing some like turning that chitin this like kind of you know plasticine type material into sort of hardened shells so that they can actually keep that uh air sort of trapped there and actually use it for propulsion and and maneuvering that's just fascinating i know i just probably covered what like hundreds of millions of years of evolution <laughs> in like three sentences but, uh I still think that's amazing, and uh when it comes down to it, after interviews like this and with Julie Burwald, Ber- when I w- go back to the aquarium I-, I definitely don't just go hang out and look at the otters, which is what I used to do. I go hang out with the cephs now,
1: yeah, I mean, I think also it's really interesting to think about this, okay, so you know there's this big i guess I don't know if you call it a branch in the in the tree of life anymore. I know that we don't really think of it as a tree anymore but um but you know, you've got this vertebrate thing coming out. And that completely changes the nervous system, because now, you know, there's the centralized version. And so to me, it's just really interesting how, you know, in this kind of, you know, at the same time, you have this divergent evolutionary path of cephalopods, where they continue to maintain their distributed nervous system. And I get really excited when I hear about ways in which people in Silicon Valley and other places are starting to harness this information to sort of develop robots and develop, you know, ways of kind of enhancing our life. By thinking about a nervous system in a completely different way.
2: Hey, we're just entering the period where the jellyfish are going to rule the earth again.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, could you think about a network of self-driving cars as just being, like, one giant distributed nope. octopus?
2: No, I cannot. Okay.
1: <laughs> All right, well, that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds, and we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stephen Meyer Ewald, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yu Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac, and to all of you who are enjoying our ad-free versions of the show, thank you so much. You've made uh, our decision to uh, leave Mother Jones uh, much more much more successful as we've been able to continue to bringing you the show. You can visit our website at inquiring.show. And again, you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And for five bucks, you get an ad-free version of every episode. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. And let us know if you like our new segment up to date, which comes out every Friday and just caps the our favorite science news of the week.
2: Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan.
1: And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Viss.
2: And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week.